Good morning. What a blessing to be gathered here in this place to worship Almighty God. We are so thankful that you're here uh, this morning, whether you're a member uh, or a visitor. We're very thrilled uh, with your presence. We have gathered for what is the noblest of all goals, which is to ascribe God the honor and the glory that is due His name. Amen? Uh, Some people think about worship and they think, this just seems like a waste of time. I'm so busy. I've got so many other things going on in my life. Who has time to go for an hour to listen to a sermon, to sing songs of praise? Folks, this is what it's all about. Coming together and honoring God. God wants us to worship Him and He deserves every ounce of worship and adoration that we can give His name. And so that's why you're here. That's why we're all here and we're, we're so thankful that we can gather together as brothers and sisters and not only worship, but encourage one another as well. I want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock. We will have our singing emphasis. And uh, some of you, well, you've already just decided not to come when it's singing night. And we're, we're going to be frank with one another here. Not that frank, but frank as in speak bluntly with one another. Some of you think singing night is just not for me. I don't feel like I sing all that well. I'm just not all that interested in it. But we believe, uh, we believe the Scriptures teach that singing is a very important component of our worship. And, you know, when you come here, you don't come to be entertained by a group of performers up here. You come to participate in worship. And we aim for 100% participation from everybody. Uh, and so that's why we have these special singing nights once a month. It's so that we can come and learn how to sing better uh, and make our singing more uplifting uh, and increase participation in our singing. So we want to invite you back. We're going to be reviewing some beautiful new worship songs that we have learned. And we're also going to be learning a brand new one. And I'm very excited about it. I think you're going to love it. And what is it, you ask? Well, you'll just have to come back tonight at 6 o'clock to see. But I'm very excited about this song, incorporating it into our worship here. I'm wondering, what do you think about the word righteous? What do you think about this word? Righteous. I get the sense, and I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that this is not a very popular word. Both inside church and outside. I think a lot of people, when they hear this word, what they hear is self-righteous. And that has a very negative connotation. When you think about somebody who is proud or arrogant when it comes to their behavior or their conduct, and they believe themselves to be worthy of God's love because of how they act. Self-righteousness. And that's different than this word, but I think when people hear this word, Many people associate it with self-righteousness. I think about that old Ray Stevens song, uh, Mississippi Squirrel Revival. Does anybody remember this song? You don't have to raise your hand. You might be a little embarrassed. But uh, in that song, um, he talks about Sister Bertha better than you. And she's sitting down there on the front row, and she's so proud of how holy and devout she is. And that is the image that, come, that comes to mind when some people hear this word righteous. They think about a self-righteous believer like Sister Bertha better than you from 
Well, in the song, the church is called the uh, first self-righteous church of Pascagoula, Mississippi. You know, something else I think about along these lines is it seems as if many churches these days would rather talk about how we're all sinners here. They'd rather talk about that than how we as believers are all striving to be more righteous. Now, is there anything doctrinally wrong with saying we're all sinners? Well, no, that's true. The Bible teaches that. But there is a way in which we can use this phrase uh, and it becomes a cop-out for growing spiritually. I mean, we can repeat this phrase so much to each other that we end up believing that that's all we are. That's all we are. We're just sinners and we're never going to be any different. We're never going to change. I mean, certainly we will never be sinless. But isn't the goal of Christian discipleship to sin less and to challenge people to grow in their holiness and their devotion to God? And so, yes, we are all sinners, but aren't we more than that? We're sinners saved by grace and placed in the family of God so that we can grow spiritually. And God's Spirit is, is shaping us and molding us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, so let's just not settle with, with saying we're just sinners, as a lot of groups have. Sometimes we say that so much that we forget about the quest to be righteous. So it seems to me that this word righteous is not very popular. But despite its unpopularity, righteousness is a very important concept in the Scriptures. The word that we translate righteousness in the New Testament, it's used over 200 times. At least 40 times in the book of Romans alone. And so... The book of Romans, this masterpiece that Paul writes, if you want to know about Christian righteousness, that is one of the first places that you ought to go. And for this reason, we need a fresh reminder of what this word is all about, what it means, righteous and righteousness. So let me introduce you to somebody who can help you, help us understand what righteousness is all about. And his name is Abraham. And I have a picture up here. This is not an actual photograph of Abraham. I think this is from some movie. And you may look at this old guy and you think, what what does he have to teach me about anything? This old patriarch from thousands of years ago in antiquity, what can I possibly learn from him about anything, and particularly this morning, about righteousness? Well, the New Testament authors would answer that question with a whole lot. He can teach you a whole lot about righteousness. In Genesis chapter 15, a portion of which was read for us earlier, God makes a staggering promise to this man, to Abraham, father of the Jews. He says, you will have a son through whom will come a great nation. Now, the reason that this was significant is that Abraham was already by this time an elderly gentleman. He and his wife were childless. They thought that they would never have children. And he was already thinking about who is going to be my heir. It's somebody who's not even directly related to me. And God says, no, 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 no. You shall have a son. And God takes him outside and he says, look up at the stars. Can you count the stars in the sky? So shall your offspring be. Wow. An amazing promise to Abraham. I'm going to multiply you into a great and blessed nation. And you know what's even more remarkable than that? 
the fact that Abraham believed him. Verse 6, and he believed the Lord. He had faith that God was going to do what God promised to do. You know, sometimes we talk about faith as, we sort of use it in a bland way, like faith is just assenting to a list of doctrinal beliefs or facts. That is such an elementary view of faith. Faith, in addition to that, is bold trust in God. Belief that God is going to fulfill His promises. It's extraordinary that this elderly gentleman would believe that God would give him a son in his old age and through that son would become a great nation that God would bless. That's what God promises. And that's what Abraham believes. He believed the Lord, and look at what comes next, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. That virtue characterized by a godly life, by commitment to God's law, to His will. That that definition works in Old Testament usage and in New Testament usage. And in this moment, as a result of Abraham's faith, he is regarded, he is counted as a righteous man. Now this is significant. Because before Abraham proves himself to be righteous by his deeds, Abraham really hasn't done much yet to prove that he is going to follow God's will. This is early in the story of Abraham. So before Abraham does anything righteous in terms of behavior, God says you are righteous because of your faith. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul takes this story and he says... That's how righteousness works under the new covenant in the new kingdom of Jesus Christ as well. And in Romans chapter 4, he links Abraham with us. And he spends chapter 4 discussing this. It's a, a very lengthy section, and we don't have time to get into it today. But this is the summary that he provides in verses 24 and 25 of Romans 4. Just like Abraham, Paul says, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. So what's the difference today? Today we believe that the God of heaven, that His Son is Jesus Christ. And that He sent His Son, and this Son, who is actually God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins, and God had the power to raise Him up from the dead, to resurrect Him. Paul says, righteousness will be counted to those who believe all that, Believe in Christ who was delivered up for our sins and raised for our justification. If you have faith that God did that, then righteousness will be counted to you as well. You will be regarded as righteous as a result of your faith. So, through our faith in Christ, through our faith, to use Paul's language elsewhere from 2 Corinthians 5, Through our faith in the sinless one who became sin for us, we are declared right before God. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. If we have bold trust in God, God says, I will make you righteous, right in my eyes. Imagine this, you're about to run in the 200 meter dash in the Olympic Games. Now, for most of us, that is going to require a lot of imagination, right? 
As you take your place at the starting line, you glance around at the other competitors, and you get a lump in your throat, and maybe that's putting it mildly, when it occurs to you that you're not in good enough shape to run in this race. You've not trained nearly enough to be able to compete. You're going to embarrass yourself. So right before the starting gun is fired, I want you to imagine that Usain Bolt, the fastest man in the world, he comes forward and he yells, wait! And he looks at you in the eye and he says, I want to take your place in this race. I'm going to run instead of you, but you can stand on the podium and receive the award. Now imagine this. You stand looking at a cross. You're keenly aware that because of your sin in your life that separates you from God, that justice demands you receive the punishment that that sin deserves, which is death. Even death, cruel death on a cross. And as a soldier walks towards you to nail your hands and your feet into that coarse piece of wood, Jesus comes forward and yells, wait! He looks you in the eye and he says, my father has sent me to take your place on that cross. I will hang there and die instead of you, so that you can stand before my Father clothed in my righteousness. If you trust in my Father to do this, then you'll be counted righteous in His sight. Now, you don't need to imagine the second scenario because it's fact and not fiction. And what this means, extraordinarily what it means is that if you are a person who has confessed faith in God and and responded in biblically appropriate ways, that when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees the holy righteousness of the Lord Jesus. You are dressed in His righteousness alone, not a righteousness that you have earned or that you deserve. He has clothed you in it as a result of His love and grace and your faith in Him. And when He looks at you, He doesn't see all the bad stuff from your past. He doesn't see your sinful habits or your sinful nature. He sees Jesus. The perfect, holy righteousness of the Lord. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we could be made righteous in His sight. Just like Abraham, as a result of our faith, we are declared righteous. But our discussion of righteousness must not stop here. Because this is an incomplete picture. I want to fast forward in Abraham's story to chapter 22. Several years later, God asks Abraham to do something that is unconscionable, that is unthinkable. God asks Abraham, to sacrifice his son. You remember back in chapter 15, God said, I will give you a son and through this son will come a great nation. This is the foundation of the promise that God made to Abraham that he believed. And now the son is here and God says, I want you to put him to death. And you know what? Abraham has the faith and the willingness to obey God enough to actually do it. Abraham demonstrates obedience to God 
in just a way that defies words. An astounding way. Something none of us, well, I, I won't say none of us, something I would not even consider doing. A willingness to sacrifice his own son as the Lord had commanded. And you know that at the very last moment, God spared Isaac. It was a test to see if Abraham was actually all in, was fully devoted to him, and God provided a sacrifice in the thicket. But in the New Testament, a different author, not Paul, this time James, says that when Abraham places his son Isaac on that altar, ready to sacrifice him to the Lord, In that moment when he acts obediently before God, he is justified that he's made righteous in God's sight. Now, let's pause for a second because some of you may be asking, isn't that at odds with what Paul said? Because what Paul said is that Abraham's faith made him righteous. It seems that what James is saying is that Abraham's obedience made him righteous. So are they at odds? Is this an inconsistent teaching in Scripture? Well, I don't think so. James is using similar language here uh, in chapter 2 of his book, but he's using it in a different way. I believe, as many do, that the way he is using the language here is to say that Abraham's obedience demonstrates his righteous state that he already received as a gift from God. It vindicates the righteousness that he has already received from God. And so in this moment, what happens is, Abraham becomes what he already is. He's declared righteous so that he can live righteously. And in this moment, he demonstrates his righteous obedience to God. He becomes what he already is. And similarly, we are declared righteous by our faith. And then as a result of that, we demonstrate that righteousness by our lifestyle. I believe this is the way it works. By our faith in God's ability to raise Christ from the dead, God says, I declare you to be right in my eyes. And then that launches us into a righteous, upright lifestyle. The call of Christian discipleship really is this. Go be what you are. Go be what you are. God has made you right in his sight. His grace is a gift. His love has been bestowed on you through Jesus Christ. He's made you a part of his family, one of his children. He's brought you into the church. He's given you eternal life. Now go act like it. Go live like you are thankful for that. Go do things to honor the God who was so willing to lay down the life of his son on your behalf. God has made you righteous. Now go act righteously. We hear this language in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Peter says, He bore our sins in His body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christians, we have a high calling to pursue righteousness. We're on the quest of living rightly because God has made us righteous. Because Jesus has died on the cross, He's bore our sins on the cross. Peter says, as a result of that sacrifice, go be righteous. Live upright, honorable, principled lives in service to God. Show the people of the world the conduct, the right conduct of a Christian. Show them there's a better way to live. And then very simply, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, pursue, uh, among other things, 
Righteousness. You're on a quest. Chase, chase after it. Long for it. Search for it. Pursue it. Pursue righteous living. You go out to the mailbox one day, and in there you find a fancy envelope with a coat of arms on the outside. So you open it up, and it's an invitation from Queen Elizabeth to join her at Buckingham Palace. Wow. But there's a second piece of paper in the envelope, and it's the list of requirements for seeing the queen. And one of those requirements is that even though you've received an invitation, you are required to meet the queen. You're required to wear a $10,000 suit from the best tailor in London. And you say, what? How how can I afford a $10,000 suit? The only time I buy a suit is when they've got the buy one, get three free sale at Joseph A. Bank. There's no way that I can afford a $10,000 suit. But just when you think you'll never get to see the queen, the phone rings, you get a call, you answer it, and the voice on the other line says, you don't know me, but I know you, and I know you've been invited to see the queen. I also know that you can't afford a $10,000 suit, but I have one that's never been worn that would fit you, and you can have it. So now you can go to the palace. Because a kind, generous person has given you his suit to wear. And how do you conduct yourself in that suit that evening at the palace? Well, you're grateful because you're wearing a suit that you didn't pay for. So you're on your best behavior. You're upright. You're noble. You're principled. When somebody walks up to the door and they wave their invitation, they say, but I received an invitation. Please let me in. But they're not wearing the suit that you've got on. You don't make fun of them and you don't put them down and you don't call them a slob and say things like, how, did, how could they possibly expect to get in to see the queen looking like that? No, you say, man, I feel for that person because they, don't, they must not have the generous benefactor that I have. Maybe I should tell them about who gave me this suit. Maybe the person who gave me this suit has one that they can wear as well. The fact that you're wearing the suit changes the way that you behave. You behave in ways that demonstrate how thankful you are to be wearing someone else's suit. You have the attitude that Isaiah had when he said in chapter 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God because He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Listen, if you have faith in the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He will regard you as righteous. And if you don't know, let me share with you that this is a gift you desperately need. You need to be in a righteous state in order to have a right relationship with God. And the fact of the matter is, living in a broken, sinful world, well, the Bible says no one is righteous in this world apart from God. No, not even one. So how do we become righteous? So that we can have peace in our relationship with God? We come to God in faith. And we say, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the only one 
who can make me righteous through your Son, Jesus Christ. And listen, true faith, the faith that I have been talking about all morning, involves a response to God. And it inherently involves some action. It involves repenting of your old way of life. Saying, I want to be done with sin. I want to be done with that world, with that lifestyle. I want to turn my attention towards God and what pleases Him. It inherently, faith inherently involves confession. Saying, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He's Lord, that He has the power. He and only Him has the power to save me. You know what else it involves? It involves submitting to the act of baptism. Of going up into the water, of being plunged beneath it, and of coming up a new creature, pure and white as snow, a member of God's family. True faith inherently involves these actions, these responses. Repentance, confession, and baptism. And I know we have people sitting in the audience this morning who have not submitted to God in this way. You haven't come and said, I need to be made right in God's sight. I need to be clothed in righteousness, and I can't get there on my own. I know that the only way for me to be righteous is for me to give myself to Jesus Christ. And boy, would we love to see somebody put on Christ in baptism this morning. Boy, would we love to help you make that most important Decision, And when you make that decision, then as a result of that gift, you can begin to live righteously. You can be what you are. You're made righteous, and then you can leave and live a righteous lifestyle. Or maybe you're struggling with sickness, or you're suffering, or you're having spiritual issues. We'd love to pray with you. If you need to Turn your life back around and recommit, rededicate yourself to the Lord. This is a time for you to respond as well. Would you come as we stand and sing together?